Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon, episode 61, Toussaint Louverture. Before we begin, I'd like to remind all of our fans and supporters that if you'd like bonus content, please check us out on patreon.com forward slash Generals and Napoleon. You can also follow us on Spotify, Twitter, or X, Instagram, and wherever podcasts are heard. Now, on with the show. We have a very, 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 very special guest this episode, our good friend Everett Rummage from the Age of Napoleon podcast. Say hello, Everett. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming back on the show. Um, Everett has one of the best, if not the best, Napoleonic podcasts out there, Age of Napoleon. He's also been on our show previously. Uh, we talked about Pasquale Paoli. Uh, but who are we talking about in this episode? It's a very interesting individual. Yeah, um, it's, it's funny. I just occurred to me that in some ways, some similarities to Pauli, also a, a rebel leader and a sort of an enigmatic figure. Um, we're going to talk about Toussaint Louverture. Yeah, yeah. Freedom fighter in his own right. Um, for those of my listeners who don't know Toussaint, could you give like a, a kind of a thumbnail sketch or a quick overview of this gentleman? Yeah, so he was um, born in the colony of Saint-Domingue, uh, today Haiti. Mm-hmm. Um, which was a French colony in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a black man. His parents came from Africa. Um, he was born a slave and through a highly improbable and fascinating chain of events that we're about to get into, uh, he became one of the most well-known and celebrated figures of the era and ultimately led uh, Haiti to its, uh, well, not to independence, but to sort of quasi-independence uh, under French rule. Yeah. And, and to sort of the, the founding father of Haiti. Yeah. And uh, one of the very few slave revolts that actually led to freedom, correct? Yes. Actually, the the only one in modern history that was ultimately successful. Yeah. Amazing story. Well, uh, yeah, let's jump into him and, and his story, and, and we'll learn more about this individual. Uh, Toussaint came into this world in Cap Frances, uh, like you said, Santa Domingue, a modern day Haiti, in May 1743. And he was born into slavery as his parents, Hippolyte and Pauline, were both slaves at the time. Do we have a lot of information on his upbringing? Uh, we actually have a surprising amount um, for, you know, slaves in Haiti at this time were not legally considered people. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might think that, you know, this would all be hidden in the mists of history, but we know that he, uh, he was, uh, seen as a remarkable child from when he was, you know, very young, he was seen as sort of a prodigy. Uh, he was very sickly. Um, he, his nickname was, uh, Fatras Baton, which means, uh, uh, awkward stick. <laughs> um, he loved horseback riding, and as an adult, he would he would be famous as the uh, the best rider in the colony. His parents, we think, were from the aristocracy in Africa, mm-hmm. and that obviously did not carry any weight with the white French people who ran the colony. Um, but it did mean that his family had some measure of respect among their fellow slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, he learned how to read and write, and. Um, you know, sort of just, you know, general basic European style education. And he also studied African herbal medicine um, under a, um, you know, an elderly man who lived on the plantation who had this knowledge. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's to me a, a very interesting window into his character is that you know he, from this very early age, he had um, you know exposure to both the world of the white Europeans and also um, you know he had this connection to his roots um, to you know the, his parents' country. He even right. spoke the language actually, um, the Fon language, which yeah. uh, is still spoken today in West Africa. Yeah, it's all very interesting. Um, his parents would go on to have several other children, and uh, they grew up on a plantation, uh, Toussaint and his uh, siblings. I believe in Haiti, it was it was the most valuable colony in France because of its sugarcane. Why was sugarcane in such high demand, and why is sugar so incredibly difficult and dangerous to harvest? Right, so um, sugar, basically, until... Um, the colonization of the Caribbean, Europeans never had enough sugar. Mm. Um, sugar in Europe was very expensive. It was a luxury good. Right. Um, you know, most people probably never tasted it because it was so expensive. Right. And then all of a sudden, um, Europeans are running these colonies in the Caribbean that are capable of producing massive amounts of sugar. You know, they have the, the exact right um, climate and, and soil conditions and all that, um, to, to not only grow sugar, but grow sugar on a just incredible scale that, that, um, no one had imagined before. Right. And so there's just this booming business in Europe in, um, you know, sugar for, uh, coffee and tea, which are of course also, you know, fruits of colonialism, a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of coffee grown, um, in Saint-Domingue as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's rum, um, sweets, and this is, you know, by, by the by the time Toussaint is born, that's, um, I mean, just a, a massive booming trade in Europe. Unfortunately, um, that means there's a lot of misery going on in the Caribbean. Yeah. Uh, sugar cultivation is just, in this time before, n- nothing is mechanized in this process. Well, almost nothing. Right. And so everyone is working by hand in these sort of semi-flooded fields. Yeah, like a swamp. Where there are... Yeah. yeah, swamp basically. And there's there's crocodiles, there's snakes. Everyone is swinging machetes around because that's mm-hmm. how you harvest sugarcane. Mm-hmm. And so you've got thousands of people who are tired, living in bad conditions, um, you know, doing forced labor, exhausted, swinging around gigantic swords. Basically, mm-hmm. accidents can happen. And and then there's the uh, these machines that they use. This is the only part of the process that is actually mechanized. Uh, there are these press machines that they use to uh, to uh, uh, turn the uh, the actual physical cane into into juice, mm-hmm. and uh, those can those are very crude, and, and it was very common for people to get their arms or, or hands sucked in mm-hmm. and just crushed. And um, it was very common in Haiti to see one armed people because right. just these machines took so many people's arms. Wow. Okay. Now, thank goodness for. Tucson, he learned several languages growing up, like you mentioned earlier, uh, African Fawn, Creole, French, and was later de- trained to be a domestic servant, which got him out of the sugarcane fields. He also studied theology, and it just seems like a guy who sought mentors wherever he could find both, both education and and mentorship. Is that a correct assumption? Yeah, that's uh, I, I, that, that line really jumped out at me in, in the outline you sent me, because I think that's a very good observation about his life. You know, he um even into his middle age he's like this when he's in his 40s and a very respected you know eminent person 
he still is is very happy to to sort of play the part of the you know humble student when mm-hmm. it suits him when 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 you know he needs when he knows he needs to learn something he is totally willing to um you know almost uh humiliate himself for people you know to say hey you know i'm you know your humble pupil just teach me everything you know right and um that's being a sponge and that's how you gain intellect is learning from people who've done who've done it longer than you have yeah and and i think it also speaks to um you know side of his character where you see this a lot in his diplomatic negotiations where he um he's happy to play the subordinate role or appear to at least mm-hmm. when it suits him. That's his, that's a, a very common aspect of his sort of strategic thinking, you know, be it on the battlefield um, in diplomatic negotiations. Uh, he likes to play it off the back foot, you know, mm-hmm. where he's sort of seems like he's taking a subordinate or um, playing the subordinate position. Right. But if you sort of zoom out and look at what his goals are and, and sort of what he's doing, you can see that actually he is holding all the cards and sort of manipulating people from that position. So it's almost like, I a, think, like an uh, intentional submissive, but you're not, you're not, you're, you're pretending to be submissive. Right. And I think that, you know, this is probably something he learned living as a slave and, you know, just in general as a black man in a horribly racist colonial society that, you know, there is, power in letting people think that they're in charge and then doing what you want sort of indirectly yeah and, and he was just a master of that and I, and I think it's interesting that you know in a sense um i think you know you look at his life experience and sort of these people who thought that they were subjugating him were teaching him how to beat them right he was taking mental notes the whole time uh exactly and he was like a footman or a coachman and he, he kind of learned to watch people negotiate in that role Yes, this I think is a really underrated part of his biography. He was the coachman of um, his his plantation where he was born was was managed by a lawyer because the owner lived in France. He became the coachman for this lawyer. So he's literally driving the guy around like a chauffeur. Mm-hmm. But in practice, the, the, the coachman of a Haitian planter was like um, their, their bag man, their right-hand man, their right. assistant. Right. And so these guys were very savvy and they played a really important role in the political system. Mm-hmm. And Louverture was this guy's coachman for years. And I think um, they, they formed a very close relationship. Um, later, they would refer to themselves like, you know, like father and son. Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, you know, it's, it seems so unlikely this guy who is, in a sense, his captor. Mm-hmm. Um, not directly, of course, because he's just managing this for the for the absentee plantation owner. But you know, he's a he's a white man in a position of authority over a black slave, right? But they seem to have actually. I mean, of course, we don't know the the details of their relationship, but they seem to have really formed a bond because their relationship persisted after the revolution. You know, this guy even um when he was much older and 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 Louverture was the leader of the country he sent his sons to be Louverture's aides oh so to, to learn that. from Louverture in the same way that Louverture had learned from him yeah. so i think this is a real friendship despite sort of the really bizarre and creepy um undertones. you know inherent undertones yeah, yeah to uh to a relationship between a white man and a black man in this era 
but it seems to have been a real uh, real relationship, and Louverture certainly got a lot out of it. Yeah, um, imagine because he he was a very savvy operator. Yeah, and you'd meet a lot of power brokers in those meetings. Just even if you are the coachman, you're still meeting these other people. You know, well, and furthermore, you're meeting the other coachmen. Right. And they, the uh, the leaders of the rebellion, when the rebellion finally does break out, are almost, well, not almost all, but a huge proportion of them are ex-coachmen. Mm. Because who else among the slaves has this knowledge and these connections? Yeah. Um, so that, that, I think that this period as um, as the, the coachman for his uh, his captor is, is a really formative and important part of Louverture's life. And you look at what he was able to achieve later. I think a lot of it um, can be traced back to that period. Okay. That's an interesting point. Um, but also, you know, as he's aging now, he eventually becomes a free man sometime between 1772 and 1776 and marries shortly afterwards. What was his personal life like? In the period between when he became a free man and the revolution, he is, um, you know, he's probably not a famous person by any means. You know, people in his local area know him. Right. Uh, he's just a, a, a local pillar of the community. Mm -hmm. uh, he is, uh, he's a licensed uh, herbal medicine practitioner. So mm -hmm. he's doing that. Um, he's involved in the coffee trade at one point. He might have actually uh, rented slaves at one point, which is mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. Um and sort of complicates the, the image we have of him a bit. He's very active in his local uh, Catholic church. He, he was a very religious man, uh, more on the sort of liberal side of things, but um, certainly a man of faith. Um, and, you know, he is just, uh, you know, this is about as high as a black person in his society could reach at this mm -hmm. point in his life. Mm -hmm. And so he is just sort of doing his best and living his life. Um, he has a couple children. He, he was very close to his children. Um, and he's just, you know, he is a successful small businessman and family man and uh, not a person that sort of men of affairs would really know about because he's a black person in a racist society. But you mentioned, and I think it was a good term earlier, he was a pillar of the community. He earned his freedom. He's, you know, like you said, a small businessman. So he's probably a good example to others, he's well educated of what they may want to, if not emulate, at least follow in his footsteps. Right, exactly. You know, and um, he had less than one percent of slaves in Haiti could ever hope of becoming free. Mm. So he's really, you know, by achieving this, I mean, he is. You know, it's it's funny to think of someone who is, like I said, just kind of a local small businessman in a little sleepy colonial town. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but he is, for his community, he has reached the very pinnacle of achievement. Right. Um, right. So he's a, a rarity already at 1% of the population. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, in 1789, the French Revolution begins in earnest in France. Does this inspire the Haitian Revolution, or how does it begin, and what is Toussaint's role in it? Kind of the first important thing about the revolution in Haiti is that the people who actually run things in the colony um, who are whites and a, a very small number of uh, mixed race people who have sort of limited civil rights, but some, a, a very small group of them are very wealthy. So they do carry a lot of weight in society, even mm -hmm. if they have limited civil rights. Um, the people actually in charge start to kind of fracture over the revolution. 
in the same way people in France are fracturing over the revolution. Right. Um, there's people who are radicals. There's people who are supportive of the revolution, but more cautiously. There are royalists. There are reactionaries. Um, some of the mixed race people see this as an opportunity to uh, finally achieve uh, legal equality with whites. And so that they're sort of getting into the mix. Um, and so Haiti starts to sort of devolve into rival armed camps. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, the black population is not really involved. Um, they actually tried to uh, keep the knowledge of the revolution from the black population. Right. Um, but I mean, that's of, of course, you know, that's, that's some pretty juicy news to be trying to keep away from people. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so very, very quickly, the black population becomes aware of what's going on. And, you know, the question of did it inspire the Haitian revolution is a difficult one because you look at the, the political ideas that are floating around in the black community in Haiti. Mm-hmm. And some of them are clearly inspired by France you can talk about the the influence of the French revolution all over the world in this way, you know, same, same in Ireland, same in India, people are not necessarily in tune with all of the little sort of local peculiarities of the French revolution, but the idea that those who were once on the bottom under the boot are now on top and things is a very powerful idea. And you don't need all these sort of, local flavor to understand that it's a very simple concept right right so that that then you know sort of mixes with the pre-existing uh currents of uh resistance in the black community and and their own sort of political culture and you start to sort of get this mix of ideas and notions yeah and not a decade earlier the americans won their you know freedom from you know the british empire which was also you know, almost unheard of to escape the British Empire. Right. And and there actually had been a few Haitians who had been in America when that happened and witnessed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was that example as well. So people start to um, talk. And there had been, around the time, actually, Toussaint was a very young boy. There had been a sort of uh, conspiracy slash rebel movement in Haiti that had actually gotten pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, under a, a very interesting and enigmatic figure named Makandal, who um, it seems like back in Africa had been sort of a, a mystic or a, an Islamic uh, sort of holy man. And, and he, he built quite a formidable um, secret organization aimed at toppling white rule. Uh, he was eventually caught, um, found out, tortured, the conspiracy is destroyed, and he is executed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louverture actually witnessed his execution when he was a, a young boy, which is very interesting to think of. Yeah. Um, but so there had been this idea of resistance to white rule. Um, there had been a, there had been a idea of, you know, the people who made up the majority of the population of Haiti taking control of it. Right. And then you get that mixing with the idea of the French, with the ideas of the French Revolution, and you get the conditions where the whites are all fighting amongst themselves. Um, the whites are worried about the mixed race community, and they're you know at, at loggerheads as well. So there's new ideas, and there's an opening. Yeah, there's a power vacuum, if you will. Uh, right. But Tucson doesn't become Tucson right off the bat. Like he's he's like you said, he's in a small community, but he's maybe just leading from there on what the next step should be. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Yeah, that's a very hotly debated topic among people who study Louverture is when he got involved with the rebel movement. Some people say that he was probably sort of a advisor from the beginning. Other people say he was maybe leading it from the beginning. Um, still others say that, you know, hey, he's a smart guy. He was not, <laughs> you know, getting too involved with something before he knew it was a sure thing. Right, right. Um, and well, furthermore, you know, when this when the uh, the enslaved people of Haiti finally do rise up, it is a very bloody and violent period of time that ensues after that, where mm-hmm. you know, you've got sort of uh, elements of race war, where just sort of the skull, the color of your skin determines what happens to you. Uh, people mm-hmm. are massacred on both sides. Now, it's, of course, also an incredibly hopeful moment because people are seizing their freedom for their first time. Yeah. But, you know, human be- human nature being what it was, with the way the whites had treated the enslaved population, a lot of people wanted revenge. Yeah, yeah. They and, were, you know, it's horrifying to look at what they did. But on the other hand, you know, who would have behaved differently under the same circumstances? Right, yeah, because if you're the ruling whites, you want to make an example of the the slaves who rose up but if you're the slaves who rose up you want to eliminate as many white rulers as you can so yeah it must have been atrocities on both sides yeah it's just a the the period of the outbreak of the rebellion is just it sounds like hell on earth Mm -hmm. the uh the slaves are are sort of spreading the news by burning the plantations Mm -hmm. because you know part of the way the whites controlled things was keeping the the black population isolated from each other mm-hmm. and making sure there was no communication, but there's no way to hide when there's a big column of smoke in the air and you know, the local geography and you know, Oh, that means the plantation next door is on fire. Right. That means someone did something. Right. That's a clear message that cannot be uh, misconstrued. And well, so you've got these fires burning over the whole colony, people massacring each other. It's really a horrible time. Yeah, and sometime in this 1792-1794 era, uh, Toussaint adopts the last name Louverture, which means, quote, one who opens the way, end quote. What leadership leadership skills did he possess? I understand he he gains reputation for the discipline and training of his troops in the style of European warfare. Was he kind of building a militia at this time, or what was going on with the, the troops under his command? Well, it's interesting. He was actually not initially a military leader. Mm-hmm. When he first sh- like turns up, uh, you know, in the among the rebels, um, he's mostly uh, people are calling him doctor because yeah. he, with his herbal medicine knowledge, he's one of the only people with you know. I mean, obviously he can't do surgery, but he he is you know. I once saw someone compare it to a modern day pharmacist, so mm-hmm. he does have a pretty extensive medical knowledge and he knows how to make medications out of, right. you know, what, what they have available to them. Right. So he is valued for his medical skills and also for his ability to, um, because he knows the world of the whites so well, uh, he can negotiate for the rebels. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so they're buying arms from the Spanish. They are, um, you know, trying to uh, extract concessions from the uh, the white planters they're rebelling against. And so he's kind of the the, the foreign minister of one of the uh, the, the main rebel leaders. Okay. Um, and it's only after that he, he he starts getting command of troops, and only basically only because his boss doesn't like going out in the field. Mm-hmm. He wants to be at the headquarters so he can be in charge. <laughs> right. And yeah. so he basically just needs someone he can rely on to lead his troops when they're going off on raids or whatever. And so Louverture is sort of a reluctant general at first. Um, but he quickly discovered that he really had a strong knack for it. Right. Um, and more than that, he was willing to learn. And he hired someone who had been a officer in the militia to tutor him on how to be a soldier. Mm-hmm. Um, he even took fencing lessons because he wanted to, you know, lead from the front with a sword and he was sort of awkward with it. And so he hired someone to teach him. Right. The other interesting period here is, you know, in, in the, uh, the vein of my, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. He, when he's fighting the French, he allies with the Spanish. And then later on, he, he switches, he does an about face and then allies himself with the French to fight off the Spanish. And then I know the British come in at some point. Is there just, is he just finding allies who will help him in his ultimate end game? You know, that's what it looks like. Uh-huh. Um, he, it seems that, you know, the, the rebels, you would think that they would all have sort of the same, be on the same page because they were all, you know, just they were, they're all rebelling against the same system. The system right. all regards them the same, but actually the, it turns out the rebels have very different ideas of what they want out of this rebellion. Mm. And from pretty early on, Louverture's goal seems to be the end of slavery and, you know, some kind of freedom and self-determination for the people of Haiti. Mm. And he was willing to make all kinds of compromises and alliances of convenience and, basically deal with anyone on any terms, but he never really lost sight of that goal. Looking back at his decisions, it's pretty clear that relatively early on, he is working towards this goal. Right. And, uh, you know, he is, uh, he could be quite shameless about lying to people (laughs) about what his true agenda was, um, uh, particularly, um, you know, foreign powers and the whites, but even his own people, he, you know, other rebel commanders, uh, you know, he, he, he was a master manipulator and uh, a guy who was always pulling the strings. Right. Even when it didn't look that way from an out to an outside observer. Right. Um, and, and that's, it's part of what makes him so impressive. Yeah. And he was making do with what he had, you know, clearly he didn't have a Navy of any kind to speak with and he was probably outgunned. I mean, he probably had more troops than, than, you know, who he was fighting, but he didn't have a large amount of artillery that I'm aware of. So he probably was just making do with the, the best he could with what he had. Yeah, you know, it's it's amazing. You know, you you, you look at the uh, the rebellion and you see, okay, they're 90% of the population mm-hmm. of, the, of the colony is black. How could they fail, you know, like with, with those numbers? Right. But when you look at it up close and see, you know, what, how fragile their their uh, coalition was, how uh, few resources they had to deal with, 
how difficult it is to conduct warfare in this era without artillery, as you mentioned, how, mm -hmm. to, how difficult it is to fight on an island with an inaccessible interior with no Navy. Right. It's really a, 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 a riddle. And, uh, you know, he, like you say, he was willing to, you know, whatever made it easier for him to get what he wanted, he, you know, he was willing to make that deal. Yeah. Yeah, no, he, he did well with what he had, for sure. Well, let's get Napoleon into the story now. Uh, in 1799, uh, Napoleon comes to power in his coup d'etat and eventually reinstates slavery after it had been abolished during the French Revolution in 1794. There's an interesting, I don't even know what the right word is, dichotomy or irony here, and I'm not sure even Napoleon ever realized it. He was viewed as an upstart fighting against a political system of aristocrats who basically said, quote, we can't have this upsetting the system, end quote. And yet Napoleon is doing the very same thing to the slaves throughout the French Empire. And Napoleon, as you, both, you and I both know, is a smart guy. Do you ever think he realized that slavery and trying to reconquer Haiti was wrong? So Napoleon, um, probably a, a, a bit misleading to say he was an abolitionist when he was a young man, but he was uh, very devoted to the Abbe Renal, who was an anti-slavery writer mm -hmm. as a young man. So Napoleon knew, you know, not perfectly, no white European did, but he knew what was going on in the West Indies. He knew... Mm -hmm. He knew that slavery was wrong. Uh, Reynal's book, uh, Reynal wrote a book about the West Indies that that pretty clearly laid out the slave system and how it worked and what kind of abuses were going on. Mm -hmm. And we know Napoleon read that book, so right. he was aware. He knew what he was doing was wrong. This is, you know, the side of Napoleon where he. You know, he had this this idea. He was a self-conscious dictator. You know, mm. he had this idea that, you know, if you're a, a great man of history and a dictator, that means that you got to be able to be heartless and cold and calculating, and just do whatever is right for the public interest. Right. And I think that's what he thought he was doing in Haiti. I think that he underestimated how much the planter lobby had influenced his thinking. Right. Um, you know, he always thought of himself as, you know, apart from such things and above influence, but right. no one is above influence. And, you know, you look at his thinking on this issue and his statements on this issue, and it, it seems like he was, you know, the, the, these planters were incredibly wealthy and they were using their wealth to churn out propaganda, to influence public opinion, to influence right. elite opinion. Right. And you look at his statements and thinking and it looks like he fell for it. Yeah. And as, as I mentioned earlier, this is a very lucrative colony for France at a time when they needed all the money they could get. True. You know, you can't ignore the fact that um, this was not only the most profitable, fr profitable French colony, this was the most profitable colony in the world. Yeah. Period. Before yeah. before the before the uh, the outbreak of the rebellion. Mm -hmm. And so I think the lure of that, especially, as you say, to a country that desperately needed money. Yeah, yeah. The lure of that is just, I think, too powerful unless you are looking clear-eyed at what's happening on the ground. Right. Because by this point in our story, Louverture is the man in Haiti. Right. You know, he, he has 
no real rivals on the political scene. Mm. He has basically been able to monopolize power on the island through, you know, military might, of course, but also through his political acumen. And the idea of returning this place to something approaching profitability without him and without his army maintaining order and his administration keeping things together, the idea that you could pull that off, you know, just by fiat is crazy. Right. Um, given everything that had happened over the course of the rebellion and how devastated the country was and how powerful Louverture was. Right. Um, and Napoleon did actually vacillate. And at one point, he actually even drafted a letter, um, basically throwing his support behind Louverture and, and, and proposing partnership with him. Mm -hmm. um, but he never sent the letter. Mm. And ultimately, he, he makes the decision to, um, well, we don't know for a fact that he would have reestablished slavery in Haiti, but he certainly wanted to break the political power of the black population and um, reduce them to a state of social, political, legal inferiority to whites um, and get the plantations going again. Right. So we know that he reestablished slavery other places. You know, all the ingredients seem to be there that would have led him to make the decision in Haiti had he gotten the opportunity, but he did not get that opportunity, as we'll right. discuss. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's talk about why he did not get that opportunity. He, he assembles a, a large expedition led by his brother-in-law, General Leclerc, who is Pauline Bonaparte's husband, to reconquer Haiti. Uh, what happens to that, expedi that expedition? This is a massive undertaking. Mm -hmm. This is one of the biggest military expeditions ever undertaken up to this point in history. Mm -hmm. Led, as you mentioned, by Napoleon's own brother-in-law, a man who he held in very high esteem and, and thought would be uh, destined for great things. Yeah, you know, this is this is uh, you know a real. This is not uh, a sideshow to him. This is some of the best soldiers in the French military, led by very capable generals, people who Napoleon has a lot of faith in. Yep. And they land in Haiti and pretty much immediately begin attacking their allies, their fellow countrymen who had just helped them defeat the British. Mm -hmm. um, and a another incredibly bloody and destructive war ensues between the French and the Haitians. And what happens also almost immediately is it is it yellow fever or malaria that kind of decimates Leclerc and his men? Well, a whole host of illnesses, but yellow fever is the the most uh, the most important of them. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they are. This is one of the great challenges of European imperialist powers in this era is the fact that if you send white people to this part of the world, you have to sort of take it into your calculations that about half of them will die of yellow fever soon yeah. when they arrive. That's just incredible. And even if you don't die and you, you still come down with it, I believe you're laid up for quite a while just recovering. It's not an easy thing to get over. No, it is. Uh, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, people, it's a, it's a disease that, that goes through stages. And if you enter the third stage, um, you're likely to die. And if you don't die, you are likely to be in bed, you know, 
totally prostrate and and weak and powerless for months right so this is not <laughs> this is not something you want your soldiers to start getting if you are a general yeah i can imagine well it, like you said it becomes another uh, bloody war um but let's talk about the capture of toussaint by the french it seems that it was done in a very devious way, almost shameful on the part of the French. And I, I think the general who did it was almost embarrassed by it. it yeah. It, it, is it under parlay or what, what happens here? So basically, Louverture and his forces fight in this just apocalyptic war. Mm-hmm. And they are totally cut off. They're reliant only on whatever supplies they have cash in the jungle. They can't get any new imports in through the French Navy. But uh, somehow Louverture manages to fight them to a stalemate. Right. And throughout the fighting, he had been telling the French that he was open to terms, open to negotiation. Mm -hmm. And finally, Leclerc has no choice and accepts. And there is a ceasefire and there's peace. Mm -hmm. As part one of the conditions of this peace treaty, Louverture uh, retires from the army, goes back to his uh, his plantation, his coffee plantation in the Highlands, and uh, seemingly against all odds, the colony is at peace again. Right. And then he gets this message from the French administration that that there are um, labor disturbances on a nearby plantation. So he rides out. This is a very common thing in Haiti at this time. People were understandably not happy about living in a ruined country. Right. Um, and uh, so he rides out to kind of try to calm things down. He gets there. He finds that there is no labor disturbance. There's a bunch of soldiers who take him into custody. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, this was such a shameful act that it got delegated down the chain of command twice. Mm-hmm. So the Leclerc himself didn't want to do this because it's, a shameful act. So he delegated it to one of his generals and that general delegated it to another general because he too <laughs> thought it was too shameful and didn't want to be involved with it. Yeah. Um, because it is, as you say, you know, this is a violation of the rules of war. And um, at this point, I don't think the French cared very much about the rules of war. <laughs> They've been yeah. through a horrible experience. Half of them are dead yeah. and they want this to be over. Yeah. And uh, so they clapped Tucson and Irons and put him on a ship and take him for the first time in his life away from Haiti. Yeah. And uh, he gets to see France, a country that he considered himself a citizen of for the first time. Before he sent to France aboard a ship for imprisonment, he prophetically states before his departure, quote, in overthrowing me, you have cut down in Saint Domingue only the trunk of the tree of liberty. It will spring up again from the roots, for they are numerous and they are deep, end quote. He kind of knew that Haiti was still going to win its struggle for freedom, even though he was imprisoned, right? Yeah, you know, I love that quotation because it is, it's vintage Louverture and that it's, you know, it's very kind of poetic and uh, he loved, you know, talking in those kind of grand terms about liberty. And, uh, but also it shows you that he really had his finger on the pulse of the country. Yeah. You know, that he, he, he understood that, you know, just kind of, looking at the way things were, there was just no way the French would be able to hold on to it. Yeah. There were way too many people in Haiti who who knew how to fight, who had a taste of freedom and didn't want to give it up. And that, you know, send as many soldiers as you want because this place does not want to be conquered. Yeah, yeah. Just tragic, though. Um, he basically ends up in a cold cell, chained, you know, 
to this prison, basically on a mountaintop in France. And he dies in April 1803. But Haiti becomes independent not long afterwards as two-thirds of Napoleon's expedition dies, including General Leclerc. What do you think Toussaint's legacy is? Because I know, I mean, obviously his legacy is gaining freedom for Haiti, but I think there's more to it. Right. Um, you know, the Haitian liberty is the, the most obvious, um, the most obvious uh, legacy. Um, you know, t- today, every town of any size in Haiti has a statue of Louverture. And, you know, you can see why. Uh, it's mm-hmm. obvious. Uh, but I think it's worth sort of dwelling on what that meant. You know, Haiti has had horrible problems through its entire independent history. Mm-hmm. And I think people look at that sometimes and they say, oh, well, the country is a failure. Or, oh, well, Louverture, how could he have been that great if, if the state that he's the founding father of, you know, became, you know, had so many problems? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll just say this. Yes, Haiti has had horrible problems through most of its history. In large measure, those have been inflicted by from the outside, shall we say? Right. Um, but the people, generations of people, got to live their lives as free human beings because of him. That's a great point. And that's, I think, not something to take lightly. Right. Even if the country has horrible problems, I mean, people were being tortured and, and murdered every day in Haiti mm-hmm. before the rebellion. And most of those people who would have been living that life, well, yeah, maybe their lives were not as great as, say, wealthy Europeans, but most of them were just kind of free, independent farmers. Mm-hmm. And that's a much, much better and healthier and more normal way to live than to be a slave. And that's, I think, uh, you know, something that's hard to quantify, but very important. It's also a part of his legacy. I mean, he was a absolute icon for um, black people in the world, mm-hmm. be it in America, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, in Africa, even this was a guy who had proven that he could best white people. He could defeat, you know, three of the three major colonial powers were all defeated by Louverture, right? France, Spain, and Britain. Right. Um, and not only did he, best the great powers you know he was a a genius he was a uh humanitarian he was uh, a progressive he ruled haiti in the brief time that he was able to rule haiti um you know his regime has aspects you can criticize but he was a effective and forward-thinking political leader who was respected around the world yeah and i think that example was very powerful to a lot of people in disparate parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually recently read a, a a children's comic book that was published in Harlem in the 1930s about Toussaint Louverture. Really? And it was very interesting to see, you know, that was a clearly the person who wrote that really put their heart into it. And that to me is, is fascinating and a testament to, to what a what a, what, a fa- what a fascinating and important figure he was. Yeah. But he's still this very resonant example to people who are, you know, very far away, different culture, different language, um, over 100 years after his death. But he's still, you know, almost a saint to these people. Yeah. So. And, and that's, that's, I think, you know, you see the seeds of, of uh, you know, 
black political development and the, and the civil rights struggle that, that went on all over all over the um, you know African diaspora world. He's a big part of that, and he's uh, someone who's inspired a, a lot of people. Um, yeah. So I think uh, you know he is an icon. Uh, yeah. I think maybe more than anyone in this period after Napoleon. Yeah, and if you're still inspiring people 100 years after your death, you've done something right, and that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, right. uh, no, I thank you for that overview, Everett. I sounds like a tremendous man, and uh, I think my listeners will really enjoy that episode. So thank you for that very much. Um, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, one uh, last call out. If you want to check out Everett's podcast, Age of Napoleon, it's fantastic anywhere you hear a podcast, and his Twitter page is also very interesting uh, if you want to check out Age of Napoleon there. So thank you again, my friend, and uh, hope to have you on again soon. Thank you.